Well, the f- first thing you have to do is ask Don to go get my manuscript off of my desk. Um, I forgot to put on my microphone. I, I knew I was forgetting something. They're just forgetting something. And, and now I know the big thing I was forgetting. Um, 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, 12 through 16. Uh, like last week's text, uh, this week's text, too, in the Greek New Testament is a single sentence. Now, in the ESV, it's broken up into three separate English sentences. Uh, but in the, uh, as Peter wrote it, it's one long very complex sentence uh, designed to make the point that judgment is real and those who advocate for its unreality have ulterior moral motives Thanks, Don, for advocating for that. That's the thrust of what he is arguing really throughout the whole chapter, but now we're sort of in the center of it here. The second thing to say just before um, we read this, that if, if a bone scan was run on Peter, you can tell, and they would be able to see clearly, that the man doesn't have a politically correct bone in his body. Um, This this is a very in-your-face sort of presentation of the topic at hand, um, and, uh, and, and we should find ourselves, we will feel that, because we live in a very politically correct time where you know you're not supposed to talk about people, anything like this, but he does, he does. So let's stand together and we'll read... 2 Peter 2, 12 to 16. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked For his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, 
It is good for us, the psalmist tells us, to praise you as our God. Because very pleasant is the beauty of praise. You are the one who has built Jerusalem. You are the one who eschatologically will build the new Jerusalem. And all of the troubles of Israel, you cover. You are the one healing those who are broken in heart. All of those who are overcome with pain. And Lord, that speaks to many people in many times and in many different ways. Some are broken in heart because they have broken bodies. And others are broken in heart because they have broken relationships. And others are broken in heart because they have broken finances. Others disturbed because the brokenness of the world's situation. And on and on we might go. But we come to you who is the one who forms the stars. The one who has called all of the countless stars. Maybe 200 billion stars in each of 200 billion galaxies, according to some astronomers' guess. And when we think of such things, we are reminded, as the psalmist was, that you, our God, are great. Your strength is great. And as to your understanding of things, we can't even begin to measure it. And so this morning we have already answered you in song. We thank you, Lord, for your instruction through somebody like Peter. Praise you as our God with instruments. You cover all the heavens with clouds and you spread out the grass on mountainsides. You are the one who gives to all the creatures of the earth their food, and we see it all around us. And we watch how you enable us to feed ourselves with billions of people on the planet. It really is a remarkable thing. But Lord, one of the things that we neglect the most, that is really the most striking, as the psalmist says as he closes out Psalm 147, and we're focused on it in this hour. That is, he, you have told your word to your people. You've told your word to Jacob. Your statutes and your judgments to Israel. There are many people who have no word from you in the world. Constant concern of mission. But there are far, far more who think and live as if they've never heard any word from you. They don't know your judgments. They imagine that they will, in the end, be answerable to no one. 
when in fact they will be answerable to you. All people, everywhere, so you have declared, so have you said, so is Peter declaring in our text for this morning, Lord, we praise you that you have spoken to us about such things, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. It is often said, and truly said, that there is a tight relationship between what a person believes and how a person lives. What a person's doctrine is and what a person's life looks like. Sometimes it's put in this overly simplified, but still there's truth in it way. Really, right doctrine, right life. Right doctrine, right life. Now, of course, we all know that all of us uh, fail to live lives that reflect our doctrine. Well, now, that's what's overly simple about it. But what's true about it is that there is a remarkably tight connection with someone's, as we say, worldview and the shape of their life. There always has been and there always will be that sort of tight connection. So it really matters what we believe really matters. The kind of spiritual, theological messages we feed ourselves. I've quoted him more than a hundred times over the years. Kevin Van Hooser, the people of God are called together by God to embody God's word and worship and witness and wisdom. For the sake of the world. Now Peter in this text is warning us. That the opposite of what Van Hooser wrote. Is also true. So Peter is warning us that this is also true. The followers of false teachers. Are gathered together by false teachers. To embody their false teaching and thereby to distort their worship, witness, and pervert their wisdom for the sake of conforming more and more closely to the course of this world, which is almost always the direction of false teachers. Now our thesis for this morning is this. It's kind of, it's long for a thesis, but this is one long complicated sentence. And so here's how I've summarized this one long complicated sentence. Here's what Peter is saying. The character and reliability of false teachers should be carefully considered so that we don't follow them, so that we are not shaped by them through their false teaching or in by their false teaching. Back to Kevin Van Hooser. Um, uh, the, the phrase that he actually presents himself, and he, he's not a young man anymore. Kevin Van Hooser is uh, 11 months older than me. Uh, he's taught, he's, I think he's back at Trinity now. He's taught at Trinity and then Wheaton and Cambridge and various places, jumped around a little bit. But uh, what he has said about his life as a teacher and a, a theologian, he said, over the last 40 years, ever since he got out of graduate school, he says, he says my life is built around, around one question. It's a really simple question. What does it mean to be Biblical. 
What does it mean to be biblical? Does it mean just believing the right things? Does it mean just avoiding certain practices? Or does it mean some combination of believing in such a way that your beliefs shape your life into a a biblically shaped life. Uh, But what does it mean, he asks, to be biblical? Um, And it's an important question because You could put it another way. What does it mean to be ideologically shaped in 21st century America? What will you believe? What will you be like? How biblical will your life look? How much of a contrast is there in our day between being biblically shaped and being ideologically shaped? I'll tell you, it's vast. It's vast. And Peter turns to tell us that it's always been vast. It was vast in the first century to be biblical and to be Roman Empire-esque. Very, very different. Here again is how he puts it. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters that they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. And they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. And he goes down and uh, he, he summarizes the whole thing as madness. Madness. Um, so we'll come at this from three angles this morning. Number one takes up the biggest part of the text. And it'll be the longest of the three points uh, for that reason. But by no means even able to begin to deal with each phrase of of this description of the character of false teachers. Number one, character and content are closely related in the life of the spiritual teacher. Character and content are closely related in the life of the spiritual teacher. As I say, uh, Peter has no uh, politically correct uh, phrases and he starts out with maybe the, one of the, certainly the most offensive of all of them, right out of the gate in verse 12. These, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Irrational animals that exist to be hunted down and destroyed. We have a, a few people in our church who are uh, somewhat famous. Some of you who follow them online, you know this because you've seen uh, pictures of, uh, you know, pickup truck loads of dead coyotes um, on, uh, on, on some of our folks' sites. They go out and hunt coyotes, with, uh, which is not an easy thing to do. You hunt them at night, and you actually, uh, to do it well, you have to make a fair investment in nighttime scopes uh, that'll enable you to shoot from a long distance in the dark. Um, but that's, that's, that's what he's talking about here. That's, that's the image. Irrational animals that are nothing but a menace to uh, the community that they're around. You know, coyotes picking off sheep and, and, and this and that and the other, the, the other thing. So nobody spends much time weeping over the death of coyotes um, or the death of 
prairie dogs that ruin fields all over the place in the mid and western part of our state. Well, that's the sort of metaphor that he uses of these false teachers. They are irrational animals. And uh, the only thing to do with them, and now he's talking about the false teachers, is to get rid of them. He doesn't mean by killing them, but he does mean by getting rid of them. Uh, They're extremely dangerous. They're extremely hard to get rid of. He says this about them. They blaspheme matters of which they are ignorant. They blaspheme matters about which they are ignorant. Here's what Jesus says about um, one of the great issues of our time. Uh, for instance, the, uh, the whole nature of gender. Uh, the whole nature of marriage. Uh, you see, for Jesus to talk about marriage means you must talk about gender because the two things are unbreakably tied. And so when, when the disciples ask him and when his opponents ask him, particularly in Matthew 19, it's the opponents, they ask him a question about marriage. So in Matthew 19, they ask him, Tell us about the norms of marriage. And he does it in a two-phase way. He talks to them first about the norm of gender. And then he talks to them secondly about the norm of marriage. Here's how he does it. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, he made them. Male and female, is quoting from Genesis chapter 1. He made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man, a male, shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, a female, and the two shall become one flesh. So therefore, what God has joined together, let no man Separate. So there's Jesus. Now, from a headline that was in our the front page of our Sunday paper two weeks ago, um, here, here, here it was, Argus Leader. Um, a decade of hate. A decade of hate. By the criteria of this headline, Jesus is a hater. He's a hater. Because if you are not all for removing all discernible distinctions between being a man and a woman, you're a hater. Well, Jesus is not for removing those. And he would not be for somebody legislating the removal of that distinction. So according to the Argus leader... And according to the, you know, the cultural Marxism that drives most of their, their reporting, he's a hater. So you see, both, both sides use strong language. Peter pushes back. That's the talk of irrational animals. They are blaspheming about things that they are completely ignorant for of course it is blasphemy to call the son of God a hater Um, now all of this again is built around really a side doctrine these people are arguing central to the doctrine that Peter is concerned about there's no judgment there is no judgment you know, it's that Elton John line I quote all the time from 1975. All this talk of Jesus coming back to see us, it couldn't fool us. There's no end time judgment. 
We're not going to all appear before the judgment seat of Christ like Paul said. No. No. Nothing, nothing like that. But the connection between these two things is remarkably tight. Remarkably tight. Of these teachers, Peter wrote this. They have eyes full of adultery, satiable for sin. Now, I don't know who the two most prominent theological voices of the 21st century will turn out to be, but it's not really much in doubt who are less than a handful of the most important theological voices of the 20th century were. And one of them was a man named Paul Tillich. Uh, Paul Tillich uh, was from Germany. He eventually made his way to the United States, where he taught at Union Theological Seminary for many years before making stops at Harvard University and then, uh, again, the University of Chicago before he died. In, uh, in 1965, at the age of 79. Three years after Paul Tillich died, his wife, Hannah, published an autobiography. Here it is. From time to time. From time to time. And in Hannah Tillich's autobiography of her husband, Paul, whom she refers to as Paulus, uh, she recounts that Uh, Paul Tillich was a serial adulterer. He had sexual relationships with all kinds of students under all kinds of different circumstances over decades of time. Now, she was no innocent wallflower herself, but he certainly started it, and she eventually had a number of affairs as well, as well as uh, relationships with uh, people of the same sex, gender. Um, Paul Tillich did not believe in untimed judgment at all. He didn't believe in a personal God. Uh, He believed that God was the ground of all being and spoke in many other vague sorts of ways. But the second person on that list is a hundred times more biblical than Paul Tillich. His name was Karl Barth. Barth's probably number one. The most significant theological influence of the 20th century, Karl Barth. Brilliant, almost beyond belief, hardworking, gifted, and lived out an affair, and a decades-long affair, with his secretary, Charlotte von Kirschbaum. Most of it with all three of them living in the house together. Bart, his wife Nellie, and Charlotte. And everybody knew what was going on. Bart wrote a letter to his wife when he was 61 years old, 1947. Now, hold on to that date for a minute. 1947. Bart is 61 years old. And uh, he's already, by the time uh, he, he writes this letter, he has already published the first volume of his dogmatics. Um, he'll go on, it'll be go on to be the largest theological project of the, uh, of the 20th century, 9,000 pages. Um, but here's what he wrote to his wife in 1947. The way I am, I never could and still cannot deny either the reality of my marriage or the reality of my love. It is true that I am married. 
that I am a father and a grandfather. It is also true that I love. And it is true that these two facts don't match. Well, actually, marriage and love match up pretty nicely, don't they? Yeah, but he knows. She knows what he's saying. This is why we, after some hesitation at the beginning, in other words, decades earlier, decided not to solve the problem with a separation on the one side or the other. Now, Peter would simply say this. Like, as I say, Bart is a hundred times closer to orthodoxy than Paul Tillich. But, Paul, but, but Bart does believe in universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. Nobody has any danger from the judgment of God in the end. He's famous for assuring everybody that the atheist, uh, the most significant atheist of the previous uh, 19th century, uh, Feuerbach, certainly in heaven. And Peter is simply saying, oh, there's a link between that doctrine and this life. There's a link. But just as an aside, before we move on, notice his use of language. This is 1947, where adultery becomes love. Our cultural time has done that in a hundred different ways. All kinds of people who go to church, they're fond of saying, look, I don't think anybody should tell anybody else who they should love. Right? And it sounds so noble. It's ugly. You, you can't argue about it. Notice what happens to Peter's argument, though, if you use Bart's language in it. Uh, all of a sudden, Peter becomes very politically correct, right? Peter said, of false teachers, they have eyes full of adultery. If you slip Bart's language in, then here's Peter's criticism of false teachers. They have eyes full of love. Well, that's not much of a criticism. That's how slippery and dishonest that language is. And it's everywhere. And it's having a massive impact. So watch yourself. Watch yourself in these cultural days. Thirdly, character is called upon to resist strong temptation. Characters called upon to resist strong, strong temptation. Um, This is the fifteenth verse. I mean, this is the second point, the fifteenth verse, which is really, really, really key. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. So like in last week's message, where Peter dropped back, so reality of judgment, where'd he go? He goes to the book of Genesis, he lists off three judgments. Judgment of the angels in Genesis 6, judgment of the world at the time of the flood of Noah, Genesis 6 to 8, 
judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. Here, he's doing the same thing. He goes back to the law. This time, it's the book of Numbers. Numbers 22, 23, the story of Balaam. Balaam. So why the story of Balaam? What's going on here? Well, the only way to really get at it is I'm just going to read a key section out of Genesis 22. And right in the middle of it is verse 15 to 22. So we're on verse 15 in 2 Peter 2. And we're going to be most interested in verse 15 of Numbers 22, 7 to 20. But here it goes. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message, so the king of Moab's message. They said to him, and he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. Now what the message was, was would you please Curse the people of God in God's name. And notice Balaam's initial reaction to that. Well, uh, let me look into that. Um, you know, I, uh, I, you know I, I hope we can do business, but we'll see. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, so you spend the night. I'll consult with the Lord, and we'll see what happens. So that's how it's opening. God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Okay. So Balaam rose in the morning. And said to the princes of Balak, uh, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. But they also almost certainly told Balak, But he did delay before he refused to come, and he consulted with the Lord in the middle of the night before he actually decided not to come. Which Balak apparently found interesting and hopeful. Verse 15. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than the first. He sends a group of far more culturally significant men the second time. And they came to Balaam and said, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could, could not go beyond the command of the Lord God to do more or less. So you too, please stay here tonight. Do you hear this? But Wait. But who knows? You still please wait here tonight that I may know what the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise and go with them. But only do what I tell you. Now, as I say, the real key piece is verse 15. 
where Balak shows that he understands Balaam a lot better than Balaam understands either Balak or God or anything else. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. He wants to come. He wants to play ball. He wants to be honored. We can, we can work with that. For I will do you great honor. Anybody here not like to be honored? Not to be appreciated? Not to be rewarded? Not to be thought highly of? Would you rather your neighbors thought you were on the wrong side of history or on the right side of history? Would you rather your neighbors thought you to be sensitive and insightful or backward and oafish? What would you like them to think? And what will it take for them to think the right thing? Our culture tells us over and over again exactly what it takes. Here's what you should say. Here's what you should believe. Here's how you should act. If you want to be accepted, appreciated, thought highly of in our present cultural context. If you want to hear in the end sensitive, insightful thou good and faithful cultural servant thirdly and finally character is aided by rational engagement with God Verse 16, middle of verse 16. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So here's our question. What does Peter mean by Balaam's madness? That's a really important question. What does Peter mean when he speaks of Balaam's madness? Now, we don't have time to take up enough of the rest of the story. You know, most of what, you know, throws people all off, and so they miss the actual central metaphor in, in the thing, because donkeys don't talk. Donkeys don't talk. Well, that's, that's good. The text said that. Donkeys don't talk. Um, and, 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 and God spoke through a donkey who does not talk to Balaam. But in the story, you remember, Balaam gets all ticked off at the donkey and beats on him because the donkey keeps going off the trail. And why does the donkey go off the trail? Because the donkey sees spiritual reality more clearly than Balaam does. Balaam, spiritually speaking, is blinder than a jackass. That's central. That's central to the story. The donkey sees... Balaam doesn't see. He doesn't see reality. What does he see? What he sees plainly 
is that he would like to enjoy the money and he would like to enjoy the good opinion of Balak, the political weasel. That's what he wants. Oh, to be honored by Balak, the political weasel. I tell you, that weasel has sent me some high-ranking weasels to talk to me. Way more high-ranking than he sends to a lot of people. He's going to honor me. He's going to honor me in a number of different ways. He restrains the prophet's madness. We saw it last week in Psalm 146, right? It's one of those places, one of the number of places in the Psalms, which speaks of God as the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So on this side, you could seek the good opinion and the good graces of the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And on this side, you can trade that away for the good opinion of Balak. the Moab king, the political weasel. And Balaam goes with Balak. And Peter labels it madness. That's insanity! It's the other translation of lexicon gives madness insanity the greek word actually is that's what it means but it's it's probably where we get our phrase it only occurs once as uh, in this form in all the uh, greek new testament it's a compound word of a guy standing beside his understanding See, that's where we get the He's out of his mind. He's standing next to his mind. He's standing here. His mind is standing over here. He's insane. He's beside himself. He's out of his mind. It's true, isn't it? I mean, put it in contemporary terms. If you could please the living God, but you might trade that for the good opinion of President Biden. What would you do? Balaam goes with Biden. That's what he does. Simple. Millions of people do the same thing. Millions, millions, entire denominations. Of teaching falsely in Jesus' name. Do the same thing. For exactly the same reason. We'll close with this. In a couple of weeks, Don, Don mentioned it will be uh, Terry's ordination service. Ironically, on the very last Sunday... He's here. So those of you right after that service, you'll have the, uh, and Terry will still teach the Sunday school class, so you'll be the first ones to ever hear ordained ter- Terry speak. So there, there's, there's, your, there's, your, uh, there's your opportunity uh, coming up in two weeks. But the text that we'll use uh, that Sunday morning for his uh, 
ordination service is uh, uh, 1 Peter 4, 11 to 16, and verse 16 we'll close with. This is Paul's word to Timothy as a young pastor to keep him on the straight and narrow, but it's, it's very applicable to um, really any Christian, to many here uh, today, especially because we've got Bible school tonight, and a lot of you will be teaching in Bible school tonight. So it's, uh, here, here's the word. Here's the word. Verse 16. Pay attention to yourself and to the teaching. There it is, life and doctrine. Pay attention to yourself. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine. Remain in them. That is, you've got to do this over and over again. You've got to keep paying attention to your life. And you've got to keep paying attention to your doctrine. And then Paul says a shockingly unpauline thing. For in doing this, you shall save yourself. What? We don't save ourselves. By grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Paul said that. Yes, and he said this too. You shall save yourself and those who hear you. What is he talking about? He's talking about exactly the same thing Peter's talking about right here. You watch your teaching because it shapes your life. Watch it. Be careful, be sure it's solid and the foundation for a solidly Jesus-oriented, Word of God-shaped life. Pay attention to that. Because your very spiritual survival in the kind of world in which we live depends on it. And Peter would say, and by the way, Balaam was a prophet and he didn't survive. Balaam was a prophet and he didn't survive. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of warning, the words of insight, the words of challenge that you send us through Peter. Lord, may we be able to get by and around and through all of the punchiness of his bluntness and see the clear thinking that is reflected behind it and in it and through it so as to be shaped by that thinking. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.